Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Plan to try and read Helen's book during the um, doing David's introduction. Last week we were complaining about the heat. We're not anymore. Twin Peaks has been displaced as my number one show because The Americans is back. Is it? Yes, about which oh. I am very excited. I'm joined by Helen Thompson, Aaron Rapport, who is an expert on American foreign policy. Let's just keep doing the media thing. I watched uh, Jurassic World, um, <laughs> which is a fantastical story about a park where dinosaurs roam free and things go awry. And Glenn Rangwala, who is an expert on the politics of the Middle East, and that's where we're going this week. Well, we did a mock awards with my students last night, and one of the categories was which... Lecturer supervisor cannot seem to stop swearing, which Chris Brooke won hands down. Yeah. Yeah. I think we spent enough time talking about British politics and obsessing over it. While we've been doing that, the world has carried on turning and things have been happening. Later on in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Helen about her new book, because we do also write books here. And her book is about oil, and we're going to get onto that. And obviously that has got something to do with Saudi Arabia. But we're going to start with trying to make sense of what's going on at the moment, because it is possible that this is the most important story in global politics this year. And it's got lots of different moving parts. And I'm going to be the person who genuinely needs help understanding how they all fit together. So, Glenn, if we start with Saudi Arabia, I think there are two things that have been happening there that we need to understand. So first of all, can you just tell us about the succession? Mm -hmm. Who is going to be in charge next? So Saudi Arabia's had a fairly dispersed system of rule for the past 60-odd years. So in practice, the king is the first among equals. There is no particular hierarchy among the princes. And they essentially have had a system whereby different officials, different members of the sprawling ruling family, have been in charge of different parts of government. What we've seen over the past two years in Saudi Arabia is essentially the great transformation of this system, whereby one of the younger sons of the king, King Salman, has positioned himself in charge of defence, the economy, and now speaking on behalf of the king. So this younger son of the king, Mohammed bin Salman, has positioned himself as next in line to the throne. Last week that was formally brought in. So formerly before it had been one of his nephews that was next in line? That's right. So rule has passed in Saudi Arabia among the different sons of the founder king, Ibn Saud. Next in line for the throne was Mohammed bin Naif, who is a cousin of Mohammed bin Salman, who has now overtaken him in the pecking order. So normally if you looked at a kind of court politics, a change in the person who is the heir usually has dramatic consequences and leads to potentially catastrophic infighting. Is there any danger of that here? I think not, and that's because it's been so strategically done on behalf of the now Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. What happened essentially was the person who was chairing the council that chooses the line of succession died in May. While everybody was still in officially a period of mourning for the death of Michel, the chair of the, the council, Mumdin Salman made his strike, essentially, and overturned the existing order and got himself down as the crown prince. And so what then does it mean in substance? This is not just a change in personnel. This is also a complete overturning of some of the attitudes to the 
rest of the world. Exactly, because what's happened in Saudi Arabia is essentially the, the removal of many of the leading officials from other ministries, the people who were ministers in charge of different parts of the Saudi government, the different sort of wings of that government, have now been all replaced largely with Mohammed bin Salman's appointees. They are now loyal not to the system, but they're loyal to him. And that gives him an incredible amount of power, a sort of power we haven't seen in Saudi Arabia, one official in Saudi Arabia having for the past 60 years. And that gives a high degree of flexibility towards... I think the other thing is is the substance of it. So if you go back to what was going on in in 2016, there was a lot of conflict within the ruling royal family about what to do about oil for for various reasons, particularly what to do about the oil price and what had effectively been, well, in some sense, the the Saudis had lost a battle with the American shale oil producers in which they'd effectively been trying to, to bankrupt them. And the then deputy crown prince, the one who's now the, the crown prince, had been the most radical in some sense in both pursuing that confrontation and then wanting to say, look, Saudi Arabia's attitude towards oil has to change. And he commissioned this report, I think it was from McKinsey. Who, yeah, the Vision, Vision 2030. Vision 2030, in which supposedly... It's a very McKinsey type. It is, in which supposedly by, I think, 2030, then Saudi was going to have a non-oil-based economy, which obviously mm. in many senses is just a, uh, a complete fantasy. But it did have real policy consequences, particularly at a point when it looked like OPEC was going to be able to make an agreement with Russia that was going to involve Iran in order to try to stabilise the price, and he essentially pulled the plug on that. Okay, so we're moving ahead and we've got lots of different moving parts already. Just a quick question. In the, the Vision 2030 document, in the fantasy, what replaced oil as the basis of the Saudi well, economy? tourism was one of them. <laughs> Sovereign wealth fund, essentially. Yeah, finance. It, it's the part privatisation of Saudi Aramco, the national oil company, mm-hmm. which would make it the largest stockholding company in the world. They would earn $2 billion sovereign wealth fund from this, which would then be their basis on which to invest around the world. Part of what's going on in Saudi Arabia is that everybody is looking to Saudi Arabia at the moment to be an investor in their national infrastructure. So this is in the US and UK. They're both competing to draw the proceeds of what they will see as the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia to be part of their infrastructure projects for the, for the forthcoming decades. Which, by the way, it should be pointed out, this kind of dynamic was partially responsible for the 2008 recession. Of course. Yeah, we're going to come on to that when we talk about Helen's book. So now we're going to park that, and we're just going to try and make sense of the other thing that's going on at the moment, and then let's bring in the the wider question of the confrontation with Iran and then the attitude of the Trump administration. But the flashpoint at the moment is Qatar and the attempt by the Saudi administration to isolate Qatar and indeed to blockade Qatar and to impose a kind of sanctions regime. So what's that about? So what the Crown Prince is doing is not just working in the economic sphere, he's working in the foreign policy sphere. That was originally the project with Yemen, so the war in Yemen is essentially his creation. He's been Minister of Defence since the establishment of the the new regime in Saudi Arabia. So it's very much an attempt to impose Saudi dominance on the region. It's to say Saudi Arabia speaks for the region. Foreign policies of Gulf states have to go through essentially Saudi auspices which will coordinate and direct those foreign policies. Within the so-called Gulf Corporation Council, corporation has rather faded out as a term within that, and it has become a system of Saudi leadership in the region. Qatar has long tried to present itself as having an independent foreign policy. It's flagged up its own distinctiveness in global affairs through the use of its broadcast outlet, Al Jazeera, as well as in its various attempts to broker pieces around the world from Darfur to Colombia. It's tried to take on an independent role in those terms. 
And that has been the major limitation on Saudi Arabia's claim to be able to speak on behalf of the Arab states, especially the Arab states of the Gulf region, over the recent years. Now, what happened earlier this year was that Al Jazeera started becoming overtly more critical of the Saudi government. At the behest of the Qatari government? It's difficult to say. It's often prized itself on having an independent voice in Middle Eastern affairs. It's not a censored station. They do very much devise their own topics. But because it's owned by the Qatari royal family, it does mean that there is a certain ability of that family to restrain, to direct, to give nudges towards the direction of the station. So I think in some ways there has been that escalation that's gone on between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, which was sort of simmering away for a long time. But now the reaction of Saudi Arabia to that in imposing the blockade, in issuing its list of demands of what how Qatar should change, has, has taken it to a new level. That and the demands rapid. do include, is it raining in or actually shutting down? Shutting, shutting down. down. Not just Al Jazeera, but all Qatari independent media outlets. So what's going to happen? Well, I think that this list of demands can't possibly be accepted by the Qatari government, and it's not been given with the idea that it would be accepted, because if you look at some of the others, they're supposed to remove Turkish bases from Qatar, they're supposed to cut off foreign policy links or diplomatic relations, essentially, with Iran. And Qatar is in a unique position in this respect of the Gulf states, because it shares a gas field, the South Pars gas field, with Iran. So there is no possible way in which Qatar can be the country it is and the wealth that it has without cooperating with Iran. And that demand alone means that this ultimatum can't possibly be accepted. So behind this, the central fault line in Middle Eastern politics and potentially at the moment in world politics is the simmering contest between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And this is part of that. So how dangerous is it? I mean, there's, there is a lot of sabre rattling going on a blockade, a series of unmeetable demands, a kind of regime change or a, a new emphasis in the regime in Saudi Arabia, all of it framed in the language of who's promoting terrorism. I mean, after all, that's the line of attack on Qatar. It's, it's not framed in terms of these geopolitical divisions. It's just this is a regime that has been sponsoring terrorism. How dangerous is it? So the most direct threat is to the nuclear deal over Iran, the 2015 Vienna deal. It's long been the Saudi government's approach to oppose negotiation between Western countries and Iran. The, the isolation of Iran very much speaks to Saudi benefits. Now, that's, that's escalated again, and the extent to which the Saudis are speaking about the ways in which it, that deal is disadvantageous to them, but also to Western countries, to the US in particular, is one that could well lead to many suspecting the viability of that deal. It comes on the back of, of course, the Iranian people's validation of that deal in the elections earlier this year, the presidential election in Iran. The nuclear deal was a major topic of the debates in which both sides, the conservatives and the reformists, both endorsed the deal, but spoke about the viability of it. The candidate who won, Rouhani, spoke to its long-term viability as a basis for Iranian reintegration into global politics and Middle Eastern affairs. And that you know, won 60% of the vote as an argument among the Iranians. I think the other side of it is is that this is about a much bigger geopolitical conflict at the same time, because essentially what you're seeing is lining up of Russia, China and Iran on one side and the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, on the other, particularly since Trump's come in and has essentially moved 
American foreign policy in a more pro-Saudi direction than it had been in the last year of Obama's presidency, at least in some might say longer than that. And I think in some sense, one of the things that's symbolic of how dangerous this is, is the position of Turkey in relationship to this, because this is, after all, supposedly one of the United States' premier allies in that. What we've seen in the course of this last year is a profound deterioration in US Turkish relations to the point now where Turkey is clearly taking Qatar's side in this. Its relations with Russia are much better than they were a year ago. And I think that if we see this, Qatar is in some sense a proxy issue for these bigger geopolitical conflicts. What we are seeing is, is increased confrontation between, on the one side, Russia and China, and on the other side, the United States. And this is the big question mark, right? In the, in the past, theoretically at least, in a conflict like this, you could count on the United States to either, well, prevent it from emerging or act as something of a neutral referee, right? Because the United States has ties to all of these countries, very clear ties to Saudi Arabia. Turkey is a NATO ally. The United States has the Al Udid Air Force Base in Qatar, which is one of the largest U.S. bases in the world overseas, is where the campaign against ISIS is being controlled and commanded from. So it's got links to all these states and and leverage over all these states. But now the United States is sending mixed signals. So you have Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, trying to play this more of a neutral arbiter role. But then you have Trump tweeting saying that, you know, Qatar's sponsorship of terrorism, and this is to Glenn and Helen's point about how this gets boiled down to the superficial debate about terrorism. This is a very troubling relationship and so seeming to be much more pro-Saudi. And so this leaves a lot of room for miscalculation. And I think it leaves a situation where more extreme outcomes are probable. And in this case, I mean, we're used to looking at the Trump administration and thinking it's almost unfathomable what's going on inside. But this is not quite that, is it? I mean, there is a sense in which it might plausibly be, I don't want to use this phrase, but kind of good cop, bad cop thing in that Trump is the one who's doing most of the saber rattling, that the grown-ups around him are being a bit more restrained, but they're all basically on the same page. I mean, is there, there's not a kind of deep division there, is there? That they, they could be, as it were, playing two sides of something which has some strategic coherence? Well, it depends what sort of issue you're talking about when you're thinking about consensus within the administration. So is Trump and his immediate subordinates, are they more skeptical of the joint comprehensive plan of action? That's the awkward term for the nuclear agreement with Iran. Are they more skeptical of that than the Obama administration? Are they more in favor of a more more hawkish, aggressive policy towards Iran? Yes, they are. There are divisions, though, over the degree to which you can privilege that aim over kind of general stability within the Middle East. That's emerging between Trump on the one hand and Madison and Tillerson on the other. And general stability is not one of Trump's priorities. Neither personally or, or in general. And then there are also divisions that you see in terms of how aggressive to be uh, in Syria as a kind of proxy war against Iran. So again, everybody in the Trump administration who's within kind of what you might call the ultimate decision-making unit is more aggressive on that front than was the Obama administration. But you have people in the NSC who are thinking about more involvement for U.S. special operations forces and ground troops. And then you have people like Mattis who are very reluctant to see that happen because they know the types of things that Iran could try to do to retaliate against U.S. forces in Iraq. Glenn, then to bring it back to Syria, which is where a lot of it does end up coming back, we're also reading the newspapers today 
that the Americans are prepared to take a tougher line in Syria. They've already sort of preemptively announced what they would do if Assad starts playing around with chemical weapons again. So how dangerous is that? I mean, I'm trying to work out, because it all sounds quite dangerous, where the flashpoints are. Just whenever you think there's a possible pathway towards the end of the Syrian conflict, another thing comes up. And so a few weeks ago, you could have plausibly thought that with the recognised opposition groups within Syria, recognising that they were in a weak position, were willing to engage in bargaining with the government, were willing to go back to the Astana process, the negotiations process about um, forming a transitional government in Syria, that would be acceptable to both sides. Then this issue comes back in the US taking a more assertive role. I think in some ways coming back to Saudi Arabia, prompted by the way in which the Saudi government will not be willing to allow the Assad regime in Syria to stay in place. But if the Assad government isn't to stay in place, then everything's back up for grabs again. And I think the US is partly driven by that sense of needing to appear to be taking the Saudi side in the Syrian conflict rather than taking its own policy. I think there's another issue though and that is the question of the Russia relationship and because if you're back a, a year ago again so about this time last year actually Obama was announcing or Obama and John Kerry were announcing his Secretary of State were announcing that their approach to Syria was going to be quite deep cooperation with Russia including joint military action against ISIS in Syria and you could see a, a path that was going to lead to Assad staying in power and that essentially Russia and, and America had reached an accommodation about what was going to happen in, in Syria. But if you look at what's happened even six months on, let alone now a whole year on, is that just completely broke down. It completely broken down by the time Obama had left office because in the last few weeks, as we know, with Obama in office, he was putting new sanctions on Russia. The Pentagon was always opposed to that idea of military cooperation with Russia in Syria. And now we've had first six months or so of the Trump presidency. And remember that this was a, a man who, when he was a Republican candidate, was the most fierce anti-Saudi presidential candidate probably in the last 30 years in terms of some of the things that Trump was saying. Complete and utter volt farce from Trump from about the time that he became the nominee and started taking donations from various people and stopped being self-funding. Wanted at the same time though, even as that candidate, to have a more cooperative relationship with Russia, but that hasn't actually gone anywhere, not least because of some of the domestic pressure that he's been put on. But we are now in a much more dangerous situation, I think, we're serious concern than we were a year ago. And Helen's absolutely right. I mean, in the you know, run-up to the presidential elections, Trump is speaking against Saudi Arabia. But what happens is first official overseas visit is not to Canada or Mexico, which are the traditional places that US presidents go. It's to Riyadh. His first visit is to Saudi Arabia. He sees Saudi Arabia as a, as a money pot, essentially, a place to, to extract resources from which to engage in the projects he wants to engage in within the US in building... But Qatar has been, you know, is a, is a potentially bigger investor in the, in the US. If you look at what Qatar's sovereign wealth fund has been doing in the last 10 years or so, it's, it's a major, major player. I mean, for instance, it's the biggest shareholder in Volkswagen. It's got a number of Absolutely. big shares in the shareholding operations in the, the German economy. I'm not entirely sure that there's a more financially attractive route for Western countries in choosing Saudi Arabia than in choosing Qatar. The projection for the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund is much larger. Some projects are five times as large as the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund. Now, if that comes into being, and I'm not entirely sure it will come into being, but I think the better of Trump is that it will come into being, the prize there is so much greater than the reliance upon Qatar. And how much of, the, of that bet that Trump might be making is that the new 
direction of Saudi politics can be sustained? In a sense, is it a bet on the kind of McKinsey-Saudi 2030 vision? Is McKinsey the kind of spider at the heart of the web well, here? He says, is, trying one, to sound as paranoid One thing as that is personal in this is, because I think a lot of it is sort of structural, is but what is personal is the relationship between Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, and the new crown prince who have a good personal relationship. Uh, so I, I'm not sure whether that means that it's significant, but Krishna is certainly bought into this Vision 2030 agenda. And the other thing I was going to say in terms of buying into the agenda, and Glenn, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but Mohammed bin Salman, the successor to the current king, has bought into this agenda as well. So that's a reason for Trump to be more confident in this bet. He was the chair of the committee that, exactly. that, that commissioned that report and has been very much the spokesperson within Saudi Arabia before that. His credibility rests upon two things. One is the war on Yemen, the other is the economic is, plan. Is, is the economic plan. And if either of those two fails, I think we'll see another great transformation in Saudi Arabia. But at the moment, both of those two still look to the Saudi population and to the Saudi royal family more particularly as viable this is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let me ask the big question here, which may be, I mean, that was very, I found that very helpful. I can't say I see how it all fits together, but it's clearly complicated and lots of things depend on lots of other things. Now, I kind of tend to hate these analogies because they seem to me to be bogus, but I've seen it written. And as you discuss it, it's not a million miles away from what a lot of people might be thinking, which is, this sounds like the world at the beginning of the 20th century in lots of ways. People always sort of looking at our world and saying, at what point are we sleepwalking, to use the phrase? It's the World War One question. It's the World War One question. We've got both a very, very complex interrelated international system with lots of different interests at stake. We've got personal relationships between crown princes and sons-in-laws of presidents who have been democratically elected, but only just kind of thing. Big resource questions, but also this is a very militarized situation. And then there is a a conflict zone, Syria. And it just looks really fragile. And you've got these two powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Is war between them something that we should be worried so, about? To go back to just to grossly oversimplify what World War One was about, right? It's a Thucydides trap, right? You have Germany worried about the growing power of Russia, worrying that it's got a closing window of opportunity in which to really combat this threat on both its western and eastern borders an alliance between France and Russia. You could say there's a similar issue in the Middle East in that Saudi Arabia sees Iran as a rising power, right? This is why the uh, nuclear deal is so alarming, right? Saudi Arabia doesn't want negotiation with Iran, right? It wants to see Iran brought low. So it's not a challenger to its presumed, though not clearly not established, uh, hegemony in the Gulf region. The reason that the analogy doesn't work so well, of course, is because in 1914, you don't have an offshore balancer like the United States capable of 
playing a intermediary role the way it can now. Now, whether United States internal politics interferes with what on paper should be a, a very plausible mediational role that the U.S. could play. Because the U.S. does not question. look like an, an intermediary at the moment. The U.S. looks like it's a player on one side. That's correct. And so that's the way that even though the analogy isn't perfect, there is this dangerous dynamic where you do worry that the Saudis now with, as Glenn has pointed out, a more centralized regime behind somebody who does take a very hawkish view on Iran are worried about it rising in power to their great loss and is possibly getting signals from the one power in the world that could really put a damper on this that for, for the time being, right, this is an okay, an aggressive policy towards Iran is, is okay by Washington. Helen wants to say something. I'm going to ask quickly the other naive question, which is the other difference is that we live in a world of nuclear weapons and the possibility that two, three more nuclear armed powers could be drawn into this. Is that going to give people pause? Glenn is shaking his head. My sense is that the Russian role is frequently overstated at the moment in the Middle East. Russia has strong interest in Syria. It doesn't really have a strong interest in trying to be a stabilizing power in the Gulf region. China, similarly, I think is it may in the long term have that role, but I just don't see it taking that role in the, in the next few years. But is that still an answer to the question about the fact of nuclear weapons being a thing that gives people pause? I would kind of agree with Glenn in that I'm not necessarily thinking of this as a kind of Cuban Missile Crisis-esque, wow, that was an awkward turn of phrase, moment. I think Glenn's right that Russia's role in the Middle East as a whole is probably overplayed. The one thing that is definitely in Russia's interest is convincing states in the Middle East that they cannot rely on the U.S. to be either a neutral arbiter of inter-Arab conflict or an effective security guarantor for any particular state in any given moment. I'm not sure that I'm very keen on the First World War analogy, but I think if there is anything in it, we have to have a look at a bigger picture, and that is is that the dominant power is the United States. So in the First World War analogy, that makes that Britain. The rising power is China. So in the First World War analogy, that makes that Germany. And the First World War is then triggered by a set of events in the Balkans, and that would make then the Middle East the Balkans. So I think if you look at it in, in these terms and you say, OK, why is there so much conflict in, in the Middle East? It is because an awful lot of important resources, oil and gas, are located in the Middle East. And the rising power, China, has been effectively, particularly over the last, I think it's since 2014 when it started, one road, one belt, effectively trying to organise in an relatively loose sense for now, but perhaps not so going forward, the Eurasian landmass into some kind of economic area that works for where China's concerned. And Iran in particular, given its physical location and its oil and gas resources, is, is pretty important to China in this respect. So I think that is what makes it dangerous, ultimately, not necessarily the Saudi-Iran conflict in its own terms, though I think obviously that is not exactly encouraging from the point of view of world peace, but seeing this as part of the whole global geopolitical picture. There are all sorts of dangers. The one thing that I think should give us a little bit more confidence in the Middle East case about how it won't go the way of 1914 is that there is such a strong shared interest among Middle Eastern states in stability in the Gulf region, not just the Middle Eastern states, but world powers more generally. I mean, a third of the world's Oil exports go through the Straits of Hormuz. If that region is endangered, and it's very easy to endanger it, their economies collectively would suffer remarkably. And you're saying that relative to the Balkans, where there wasn't a huge amount at stake for the people who weren't 
directly involved in the conflict. So the shared interest was not there in 1914. Because of course in 1914 there was still a lot of talk about the fact the world was so interconnected we can't possibly go to war because we have all these shared interests. But you're saying this is qualitatively different. Qualitatively different. The economies of the Gulf states are dependent upon the stability of the Gulf region. Their standards of living, their militaries, all their different facets of their country is dependent upon the ability to export oil and gas. And without that, they themselves would suffer the consequences immediately. I was going to say the other possible World War I analogy is an argument that sometimes gets made, which is that the politicians didn't understand the implications of the plans that militaries had in place on the eve of 1914. So once the order was given to mobilize, that was the type of order that couldn't be rescinded. Now, obviously, the United States doesn't have masses upon masses of troops ready to be mobilized against Russian ground forces that are ready to be mobilized into the Middle East. But what we have seen under the Trump administration is a much greater degree of delegation to the military to operate as it sees fit. So you see this with the dropping of the uh, Moab, mother of all bombs. You see this with the really marked increase in civilian casualties due to American air sorties in Syria. I read this morning that about 60% of all civilian casualties in Syria due to U.S. sorties have come in the last four months where the United States has been doing these sorties over almost three years now. And quite recently, you saw U.S. forces shoot down a Syrian plane, right? And that led to the Russians, and this again is an awkward term, engage in further kind of disengagement from the deconfliction process, right? Deconfliction just basically means you have a red line telephone that, you know, gives the other side a heads up when you're going to be operating an area or, for example, when you're going to be sending Tomahawk cruise missiles against an airfield where Russian personnel uh, might be operating. So there is a slight family resemblance here in that it seems to me that the civilian leadership doesn't really understand the implications of giving the military a freer hand in the theater of operations uh, in question here. I think that makes a break from talking about British politics. It also makes our politics sound pretty parochial. And now we're going to take an even bigger perspective. Helen's book is called Oil and the Western Economic Crisis. And it is about trying to make sense not just of geopolitics now and some of the tensions in it but what's happened to politics around the world in the last 10 years since the crash of 2008 and I'd say Helen you could correct me if I'm wrong that the core argument here is that oil is such a big part of the explanation that the time that we spend talking about things without ever referencing oil means that we're often missing the real story so I'm just going to ask you a few questions I mean it's a it's a very interesting book. It's a quite a complicated story, like the one we've just been talking about. We'll try and keep it quite simple. What's the connection between oil, the oil price, the, the way the oil markets work, in your mind, and the crash of 2008? Because you think that you can't understand the financial crash if you don't really start with oil. Yeah, I'd slightly rephrase that and say I don't think you can understand the 2008 economic crash without understanding the part of oil. So what I see is is, is there, are, there are two different paths that are leading us towards 2008. And one of them is what's going on in the financial sector. One of them is what's going on with oil. And then there's a way in which those two things interact okay, with each other. Okay, just to be clear, because I, I need to get this clear in my mind. So you're distinguishing between the financial crash and then the economic crisis that followed. One of the things that's really striking about the year 2008 itself is, is that the way that we talk about it conflates the financial crisis and an economic crash, which meant the recessions that came, and there were quite deep recessions and took several years from which to recover. And which are still playing out in still our politics. Play, absolutely still playing out in our politics. And they tend to get sort of 
put some label on it as a global financial crisis or the 2008 crash or the 2008 financial crash. In Australia, they call it the GFC. Do they? The global financial (laughs) crisis, because they like acronyms. If you look at, though, the actual sort of micro timeline around 2007, 2008, what you can see is, is that the American economy, first of all, which was in recession by the last quarter of 2007, and the Eurozone economy and the British economy, both of which were in recession by the second end of the second quarter or the second quarter uh, of 2008, actually went into recession. These recessions began before what is considered the epicentre of the financial crash, which is September 2008. Lehman bankruptcy. Now, that isn't to say this is complicated because some people would say you can see the financial crisis already in action by the summer of 2007 that that's true but I'm pretty clear in my mind that actually that the recessions themselves were caused by the massive rise really in the price of oil from 2003 to 2008 so if you start off in 2002 before the rise begins oil is about in constant terms of just under $30 a barrel by its height in the middle of 2008 it's nearly $150 a barrel this is like a massive increase in the price of oil and western economies basically can't deal with that kind of volatility they can't deal with that kind of volatility they can't deal with that increase Oil becomes too expensive, to put it very simply, and oil essentially pushes these economies into recession. Now, the the linking bit, I think, between the, what's going on in the financial sector and what's going on with oil is is that central banks have to respond or decide anyway they are going to respond to what they see as the inflationary pressure that is generated by this big hike in the price of oil. So, led by the Federal Reserve Board, the American Central Bank, from 2004 they start raising interest rates, not all at the same time. And what the consequences of that is, and I'm going to concentrate on the American Central Bank because it tells the story most clearly, is is that those interest rate rises that are there to respond to the, the rise in the price of oil are what triggers the problems in the American housing market. And so the problems in the housing, in the American housing market, the subprime bubble, the bubble in mortgage-backed securities is essentially triggered by the problems that are caused by higher interest rates in the United States for mortgage payers. And now the reason why there are higher interest rates in the United States in the run-up to 2007-2008 is because the central bank is having to respond to oil price rises. So although that there's an explanation of the financial sector crash that is self-contained in the sense there were enough bubbles there that they would have in the end had to burst. The actual trigger that triggers the bursting of those bubbles comes from what central banks are doing and why central banks are doing the things that they are doing. They are responding to oil price. Then the wider context of your argument in the book is that if you look at the history of particularly American democracy since the 70s and maybe even before, and this relates to what we've just been talking about with Saudi Arabia and Iran and everything else, There's a recognition that presidents often try and articulate that dependence on oil, dependence on an energy supply that is not domestically produced and also is very volatile in market terms, is a hostage to fortune. And yet, over that period, no one ever manages to break the dependency. And there have been attempts, and the most recent attempt is is the shale gas revolution. But still, and correct me if I'm wrong, I take your argument to be the way that the market works, particularly in oil prices is the thing that drives domestic political response. They never manage to get ahead of the game. There never is a moment at which they are somehow immune from this volatility. And the volatility is the great destabiliser in world politics. That certainly is um, my argument. And I think you can see that 
if you take two American presidents and they go about this in very different ways, but they don't actually fundamentally disagree about the underlying situation they're trying to deal with. And the two presidents are President Carter and George Bush So two very different presidents. Uh, And, you know, you have Carter saying, you know, at the end of the 70s, look, we just have to face reality and there is going to be a problem with oil supply by the end of the 80s. Now, he was wrong about that because what happens as easily accessible oil becomes more expensive is that that makes it possible to extract more expensive oil. And I don't think he quite understood the dynamics of that. But if you go to the beginning of the Bush Jr. presidency, you've got an administration that is also obsessed about energy and obsessed about oil in particular. On the one hand, it's warning Americans saying, look, we need to break our addiction to foreign oil. At the same time, it's trying to increase supply of foreign oil, particularly in the Middle East. And I think you have to understand George Bush's administration's foreign policy in that context. But as you say, they they never get ahead of the the problem. And what we see by 2008 is essentially that the world's supply of conventional oil, and that can be sort of very schematically understood as easily to extract and relatively cheap oil, it's stagnated. And in order to have enough oil supply in the post-2008 world, we've moved into the world of shale oil and tar sands in Canada. Now, the thing about this oil is, is that it's significantly more expensive and it requires an awful lot of credit to make its production viable. And in this sense, it's been extremely fortuitous that we live in a world in which interest rates are so low and in which quantitative easing has taken place because it's difficult to see how the shale oil boom and the tar sands boom take place outside um, this context. But as we know from thinking about this issue from the financial end of things, is that this monetary environment is also extremely problematic and has extremely deleterious long-term consequences. So we're in a situation now where the world's oil supply is being held up by in some sense a dystopian monetary environment which is one of the reasons why I think that we can be sort of relatively pessimistic about how these questions are going to play themselves out. So basically in your view there is a interrelationship now between very low interest rates, quantitative easing, the way that the oil markets work and there's no way of breaking this relationship without some crash that would make the 2008 crash look like a relatively minor event. I mean, you know, how dystopian do we want to go with this? We've done the First World War, but this is a different kind of context. And certainly your book, I mean, it leaves it open, but you end pretty pessimistically. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here. But I take you to be saying we're both in an environment that's recognisable from the 1970s, and some of the tensions that oil produces in geopolitics. But in some ways, it's more dangerous because this world is more interconnected. And it's relying on a form of finance, which is at this point in no one's power to control. It is. And I think the thing I would add is, is that none of us understand and could possibly understand what the economic and political consequences are of the monetary world in which we live. And you include the people who are responsible for that world, the Absolutely. central bankers. The central they don't bankers. understand the don't world they've created. That they, I don't think they, they can understand it because it's what would you use to understand it other than something about the past where you can look and say, OK, this is when we had these kind of conditions that they played out in this kind of way. We are living in something that is historically unprecedented. Now, you can say that about you know any number of things. There's always an argument that this time it's different as this, 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 or that or the other that makes it new. But I think given how central to economic and political questions these monetary issues are, then this is a more genuinely unknown world than one I think policymakers have had to engage with. And what's 
makes it even more complicated, as I say, and even more difficult to understand is the way in which the monetary question and the energy question interact with each other. And then one last question to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier. And then that interacts with the, the geopolitical question about power relationships between America and Saudi Arabia and so on. So your claim would be that the one thing that can make sense of all of these things, questions of energy, questions of finance and monetary regimes, and power relations between America, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, is oil, right? I mean, so is, is your argument that oil's the only thing that connects all of the things that are making our world so potentially dangerous but also hard to understand because what's in a way what's striking about that is that I'd certainly bought into the view that something had fundamentally changed America was moving to a kind of shale regime where it was going to be more energy independent that maybe the story that ran from the 1970s through to the 2000s was coming to an end and reading your book has persuaded me that it's absolutely not coming to an end because oil the oil market and the oil price is still the thing to which people are reacting no one is on top of it. Yeah, I mean, that's perhaps a slightly more extreme version or perhaps I've made myself sound more extreme in the book than I want to be because it makes it seem like I'm a complete oil determinist and saying that oil explains you know, absolutely... I'm not, yeah, so I'm not saying it's yeah, determinism, I'm saying it's explanatory. I'm not saying yeah. it... I don't say you look at the oil price and then you can, you can extract from that an understanding of what's going to happen next, but that you can't understand what's happening unless you factor into that the oil price that i i wouldn't say necessarily the oil price but i would say the conditions in which oil is being produced and the financial consequences of that i think that we can't understand the world in which we live without understanding that yes i don't think that that's a sufficient explanation of the world that we live in but it is a necessary explanation of the world that we live in and i think that's what i was trying to say Helen's book is called oil and the western economic crisis and i'd say it is essential reading it's published by paul grave Next week, we're also going to be doing something a bit different. We're talking to Zafar Ansari, the former England cricketer. There's a big profile of him in The Guardian this week, who retired from cricket at the age of 25 to do other things with his life. He studied at Cambridge. We're going to be talking to him about politics, cricket, and a lot else as well. It's cricket season, it's the summer, and over the summer we're going to be doing a few more episodes where we talk about things that we like reading, some of the things that we've been trying to help us make sense of the world. Of course, if things happen in British politics, we will come back to that, but we're going to be taking a little step back. My name's David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. We're re-watching House. Very good. Turns out to be... Do you know Hugh Laurie's not American? <laughs> yeah. So my theory about House is... Um, it's like an advert for Vicodin, Right. Yeah, a little bit. And it he seems it, like a cheery, house cheery broadcast, And then the entire United States of America becomes Vicodin addicts. Yeah, there are a lot of house watchers in Appalachia. Exactly. You, yeah, I know that's the flaw in my theory. Yeah. But that's my new theory. Is there a correlation between the fact that house makes opioid addiction look kind of cool and the fact the whole country is now addicted to It makes to you opioids? a medical genius. I don't think it's the first thing to make. No, I know. No, but Vicodin, because Vicodin is the kind of entry drug, isn't it? Into the wasn't that Vicodin the entry yeah. drug? Well, it wasn't for me. Yeah, and Chris Chris Pratt has like a romantic relationship practically with one of the Velociraptors. They're very. He talks about like they have like seriously they have like a very trusting relationship and that they, you know, it's built on mutual respect. These are actual lines from the movie. I'm not making that up. So. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Good facts. Good. Well, that's Brand it. New We're done. <laughs> that's an episode. That's, a that's, what, that's, what, that's what's called a summer episode. Yeah, that's right. What, a are, what are we reading? What are we watching? <laughs> Who swears? Done. Absolutely. Hmm. Okay. Right. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> but you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.